Uh, well, I went to a, a college with a guy called John, and uh, he lived on the north coast of New South Wales. And uh, one afternoon, John shared the story of uh, one of the friends that he grew up with, one of his best friends uh, in his later teen years. Uh, they were uh, good mates, but you could not pick two guys who were more opposite uh, than these two, in many ways at least. Uh, John had grown up into a, in a church family, so he was a fairly good kid. He did okay at school. He was, you know, kind of uh, fairly straight-laced. Uh, but his mate was the bad boy. Uh, he was the cool kid in class. You know, he had the, the ripped jeans. He was wearing the cool jacket. Uh, and he was the kid who got in trouble all of the time. Uh, he was the guy that was just, you know, as a teenage boy, you might look up to in a bunch of ways. Uh, they connected, though, because they were both keen musicians. And at some point in time, uh, John had made the decision, if we're talking, as Mike was talking about the heads versus tails things, he'd gone kind of, heads, I could tell him about uh, Jesus and that kind of stuff, but he's a cool guy and it doesn't feel cool, so instead, tails, I'm going to sit on the couch. Uh, I'll just keep my mouth closed. We'll make sure that our friendship is about the things that we share in common. Anyway, you cut to uh, 15 years after that, uh, John goes back up to the north coast uh, and as he's arranging to catch up with some different friends, he finds out that his mate has become a Christian uh, and he is just overjoyed. He's excited. He can't wait to catch up with him. So he calls the guy. They go out to have coffee together and is anticipating the joy where you get to now have this new thing that connects you, this new thing that brings you together. Uh, but instead... His friend says, I am really upset with you. And he's kind of this look of shock on his, on his face for a second. And then his friend said, uh, you knew the good news of the gospel all of the way when we were in teenagers. But even though you thought it was important, you didn't tell me. I thought we were friends. Uh, John told this story because he said, this was the moment where the penny dropped for him. That even though he was a Christian, even though he went to church every week, functionally, when it came to the gospel, he realized that he saw sharing the gospel as more of a lifestyle choice. This is something that I enjoy, and if it's not something that I think you'll enjoy, I'm not going to tell you. Rather than understanding that to know God is to know the author of creation and to have a personal relationship with the giver of the universe. This was something that was vitally important, and he realized that he needed to change his perspective. As Paul continues writing his letter to the Thessalonians, we see what fills Paul with joy, what encourages him so much and what causes him to constantly thank God for the Thessalonians is that when he did make that sacrifice, where he did show the priority of the gospel by standing out despite persecution to share this good news with them, that they responded to this good news. We saw last week how he treated them like brothers and sisters. He wanted to care for them. He wanted them to hear this. That like a nursing mother, he made sure that they understood the foundations, the fundamentals of the gospel so that they could grow strong and healthy. That like a spiritual father, he wanted them to grow up into maturity. And that we understand that, that verse 13, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, that you welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. For my mate, John, as a younger Christian, he understood the gospel only in relationship to him, really. I can share my beliefs with other people, but in the end, I'm just sharing my, my personal opinion and other people might not value it. 
this kind of gospel is a, a warm and comfortable thing, but it's a, a discretionary kind of thing. Just like you might say, well, you know, I like cricket, but if you really like having some time on your Saturday, then maybe you won't play cricket. Or I like to be involved in church, but sleeping in on Sunday is your thing, so you're not going to be involved in church. Uh, but this is not the experience for the Thessalonians. As they hear Paul preach the gospel, they understand for what it is that God himself is speaking uh, through Paul and that he's speaking a message that is coming from God. Knowing that he's just come from a town where he's been beaten and jailed, uh, we can be pretty sure that, confident, uh, that Paul arrives in Thessalonica not as a confident and strong person. Instead, he probably arrives in Thessalonica as he also says that he arrives in Corinth, which is a couple of months later. He said to them, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I didn't come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I, I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching weren't with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul is clear uh, he is not an overly charismatic guy. It's pretty clear that for a lot of the time as he's coming into these new churches, his sense of confidence is really quite low. But coming knowing that it is only Christ and him crucified that he is putting his trust in, then it's blatantly clear where the power of the gospel really lies. Where Paul here says that he came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that their faith might be based not on human wisdom but God's power. His point is not that when he came, the Spirit's power meant that fireworks were coming out of his fingers and that he could do all kinds of miracles and he was doing these great signs, but that if there was anything that was really convincing, if there was anything that was actually bringing the Thessalonians into a saving relationship with Jesus, it wasn't Paul's power. It was the Spirit working through him even in his weakness. That God's power is that the Spirit has changed them. Now likewise, for the Thessalonians, uh, they are... Uh, at different times, they were either part of Greece or they were the near neighbours of the Greeks. And we know that the Greeks loved the power of a good speech. Uh, if you went to essentially university at the time, you were trained in rhetoric. They loved to have those people who were clear and powerful speakers, who were really deep and convincing, who had all of the external appearances of authority. But God's Spirit opens their eyes to the true power of the gospel that same power that is then at work in them as they come to know this. This is the thing that actually means that even when they start to feel persecution, they hold on. This is what Paul alludes to in verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ uh, that are in Judea, since you've also suffered the same things from the people in your own country. They bear up. It's interesting that in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul points out that they've become imitators of him. But here he compares them to the church in Judea near Jerusalem. And it is an odd thing because really everywhere that Paul has gone, he's experienced some kind of persecution. So you might be tempted to think, why doesn't he just say, you've born up in persecution, just like your brothers in Philippi, which is, is to the east, or maybe your friends in Athens who are down south, or maybe even your friends in Corinth that are just out to the west. 
But in particular, he picks up the Judean Christians. And why is he comparing to them? Well, I think we're going to see he has this general comparison because in verses 14 to 16, he wants to make a a bigger picture about those people. Paul says that the Judeans suffered under who? That they suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets uh, and the prophets who persecuted us. They displeased God. They're hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. And here's where I get to the point which I've been enjoying each week where we're going to have a brief aside. Uh, I'll get that verse back in front of us, hopefully. There we go. Uh, The Jewish Holocaust during World War II has brought into clear contrast the huge amount of persecution that Jewish people have experienced over the last 2,000 years and even longer. I was sharing with somebody just the other week that uh, uh, when I was going to school, when I was in high school, even then I remember if somebody didn't share something uh, with you, you might call them, that's very Jewish of you. It was a pejorative term that we use uh, much to our shame. Uh, as a, and My surname is Goldsmith and even in my high school years, it's a traditional Jewish name. Uh, people persecuted me. They called me uh, rude things because they assumed I was Jewish. It's a sad reality that throughout history, people have seen a phrase like this, uh, just as the, the Jews, uh, they did for the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus, they use this as a reason to say that Jew, uh, Jewish people should be persecuted, that they should be uh, minimised, that we should cast them out. Uh, we've been doing uh, the preliminary theological certificate and looking at Reformation history on Monday nights, and a couple of weeks ago we mentioned how uh, Luther, who did so many great things, struggled in his later years with uh, uh, the, some of the things he said against Jewish people. In the 13th century in England, King Edward I actually decided he wanted to banish all Jewish people from Britain. He wanted to throw them out altogether. As a response to this, a lot of people have wanted to try and correct things. And to point out that it's not just the Jews who are responsible, but of course it's Pontius Pilate, a Roman governor, is the person who actually decides and gives a death warrant to Jesus. It's Roman guards who put the nails in his hand. And so uh, Pope Benedict, about uh, 10 or so years ago, came out with a book where he said he wanted to exonerate the Jewish people. It's unfair and racist to persecute a whole people group based on one moment in history in which some of their ancestors may have been involved. Uh, With all of this stuff that we now understand about ourselves and how we might have responded in things, but also how we as a culture have responded, uh, we can get to a passage like this and ask that question, uh, is this... Paul being anti-Semitic, is it wrong for him to say that it is the Jews who have killed the Lord Jesus? How do we understand this? Is this one of those passages where we say, I'd really, I'd like to rip that page out of the Bible and it would make it a little bit more comfortable for me? Well, I don't think that's what Paul is getting at, and I want to tell you a couple of reasons why. Uh, firstly, uh, it's good to remember that uh, Paul himself uh, is Jewish. It's clear, uh, even in his visit to Thessalonica, if we turned uh, back to uh, Acts chapter 17, which tells us about his visit, what is the first thing he does when he arrives in this town? Uh, he goes to the synagogue to his brother, brothers and sisters who are fellow Jews, and he preaches the good news of the gospel three weeks uh, to the people there. Uh, Paul also has been clear how he has a, a deep longing for Jewish people to know and to love Jesus. Uh, this is what he says in Romans chapter 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ 
for the benefit of my brothers and sisters. My own flesh and blood, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law and temple service and the promises. The ancestors are theirs and from them by physical descent came the Christ, who is God over all, praise forever, amen. Romans 9 to 11 unpacks Paul's deep and sincere heart to see Jewish people come to a saving faith in Jesus. So what do we make then of a passage like this? What is he getting at? Well, Paul's point is one of comparison. What is the reality of how people are responding in the synagogue versus this good news he has with the Thessalonians? The Israelites have had every opportunity to hear God speaking to them and respond in repentance and faith, but so often they have been the people most resistant to Paul's message. And so what Paul does after he makes his first comment is he lays out five different ways that God's chosen people, starting in Judea, have done this, that they've rejected things. He starts by saying uh, first that uh, they have been involved in the death of Jesus. It's not an absolute statement. He's not saying, uh, you know, like if you've, committed murder this one person has done this one thing but actually a reflection on the story of the gospels as well if you read through any of the gospels we have the good news of jesus going out and saying that the kingdom of god is near but at the same time you remember as you read something like the sermon on the mount you'll hear about the uh, the pharisees and the sadducees harden their hearts to this message and they start preparing to persecute and to arrest and maybe even to kill jesus that it seems that the more Jesus says, the more Jesus does, and the more Jesus shares, the more some people choose to harden their hearts to that message. And this is who Paul is speaking about. And then he wants to make sure that this is not just a story of the New Testament, but it is actually the story of the Jewish scriptures as well. This is true of the Jewish understanding of themselves. Because again, it is not only a story of Jesus, but a story that happened for the prophets as well. You could start with the, uh, the nation being brought out of slavery, uh, out of Egypt uh, by Moses. And what happens when they get into the desert? Uh, they grumble. We were better off when we were in slavery. We had three square meals. We were better off than now when we're stuck in the desert with Moses. Uh, we hear also with the prophets about Jeremiah being thrown down a well for preaching the gospel or Elijah spending years out in the desert. The Old Testament is all about one big picture, and that is that Israel struggles to keep their covenant, their faithful promises to God. But God is the one who continues to keep his promises, who continues to love his people, no matter how many times they fail. And so we've seen this in the last couple of chapters as well, that this has been Paul's experience. He continues to preach the gospel. He continues to want to share good news. But he too has been persecuted, moving from town to town as people have beat him and jailed him and mocked him. And so the net effect traced throughout the Old Testament and now into the New is that there are these people who have all of the promises of God, who should have everything they need to make the right decision, and they have all of the external crapping, uh, crappings, that's not a really good word, trappings, <laughs> all of the trappings of being God's people, but they treat them like the other word. This, so much so that this is what Isaiah 29.13 says. I'm, no, I'm not going to recover from that, am I? <laughs> Isaiah 29.13 says, These people approach me with speeches of honour, uh, and they honour me with lip service, and yet their hearts are far from me. 
And the final indignity that Paul sees is that these people who have everything, who've been given everything, are also the people who are now not only hurting themselves, but they are stopping Paul from going and sharing this good news with the Gentiles also. And not only is this bad news for the Gentiles, but this betrays the very heart of the Bible. Right the way back at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 12, as God takes the father of Israel, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to give you a child, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless all nations through you. This is what Israel had been about, and they are stopping this very thing. The effect of this is even worse than denying God himself, because they are keeping others from hearing the gospel. And that is why Paul says, In verse 16, as a result, they're constantly filling up their sins to the limit. That is, they're making things worse and worse as they stop other people from hearing. And the wrath has overtaken them at last. At that very last comment, we're not entirely sure where Paul is landing on this. It's quite possible he's speaking about the fact that he's writing in 50 or 51 AD and it's around the same time that uh, the Jewish people had been kicked out of Rome, that they were no longer able to stay there. But it could also be about the ongoing tension that exists uh, for the Jewish people for the next 20 years, which will end with uh, Jerusalem itself being sacked. But stepping back for a second, we look at the bigger picture and we see what Paul's intention uh, in these verses uh, is and that it's clear. On one side, he praises the Thessalonians. For a lot of these people, this is the first time that they've heard the gospel and they hear it and they believe it. Uh, And they follow. They know that it's not just Paul, this guy speaking to them, but God is speaking to them and their eyes are open and their hearts are changed and their lives go in a new direction. But by comparison, Paul keeps on speaking to the people for whom he has the deepest heart, the deepest affection for. They know all of the history of the gospel. They're part of this grand story. And yet they fail to recognize God's covenantal faithfulness in delivering the very Messiah that they've been waiting for. Paul has this great comparison. And this is why he is so excited for the Thessalonians. Verse 17, but as for you, brothers and sisters... After we were forced to leave you for a short time, he's run out of Thessalonica. We're forced to leave you in person, but not in heart. We greatly desired and made every effort to return and to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. Even I, Paul, time and time again, but Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of the Lord Jesus at this coming? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. The Thessalonians are Paul's joy because they've responded in the very way that he longs for his own people to respond. Paul longs for everybody to hear the good news of Jesus, to follow in faith and to persist even when they might experience persecution. And as we think about what this means for us, I think by looking at these three main characters, we see Paul, we see the Jewish people, and we see the people in Thessalonica. It gives us something to think about in our own lives as well. We start with Paul. Usually when we talk about emulating somebody, what you do is you look at the best of that person and you think, I want the best of that person. Uh, I don't play on Instagram very often, but I do follow a couple of those, a couple of people. And one of those people is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. 
I don't know if you know him. He is a former WWE wrestler. He's one of the highest paid actors uh, in the world. And he is one of the most relentlessly enthusiastic people I have ever seen. Uh, he is built like an absolute brick. He has muscles in places where I don't even have places. He's just impressive. Uh, but when you follow him on Instagram, you think every good thing that he has is something that he, he encourages me to maybe be a little bit like that. He'll say, well, I've got a five o'clock call for work today, so I'll get up at three so I can go to the gym for an hour and a half. Uh, he loves people. He loves sharing. And every good thing that he does, you think, I'd love to be like that. Uh, I would love to look like that. Uh, I'd love to have so many muscles that I can barely get my hands together in the middle. That is Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, but as Paul lays out his history with the Thessalonians, and he, he recognises that they have tried to emulate him, and as he comes as an example to them, uh, the example is not, look at how, Paul, how great Paul is. Look at how many great things Paul has done. You want to be good like me. You want to be like me. Instead, he calls them to emulate him in his weakness, in his inability, uh, in his absolute dependence. Paul says to them, it is okay to feel underskilled, uh, to be uninspirational, to come to people in weakness and absolute fear. Because as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, God is capable of working in and through Paul, not because of his skills, but despite of his skills. And that actually God is most glorified when it is clear that there is nothing else but God's spirit working in us that sees things happen. Take a lesson from Paul. It's not that you need more skills, but that we need to trust in God more. And secondly, we might consider those people in the synagogue who rejected the message. If you read Romans 9 to 11 this week, if you get a chance, you get a deep sense of really how Paul's heart breaks for these people who have had every opportunity, all of the heritage of being God's people, and yet they're going to miss out. And the encouragement for us, I think, is to make the most of the opportunities that we have. Uh, many of you know that uh, before I came here to OEC, I was an Anglican minister for 14 years. Uh, and there's some great things that come with Anglican heritage. It was the first church to come with the first fleet. And so people often feel a deep connection. You know, even if they don't call, go to church, they call themselves Church of England. Uh, but one of the heartbreaking things as an Anglican minister is on a Sunday, you can go to church, you can have a, a chat with people who are really on fire for Jesus and they love everything. But then you can also have a chat with someone and realize uh, this person has gone to church uh, since the cradle. It's just what they've done every week their whole life. Uh, you'll notice that they, they don't have to look up page 119 on the prayer book because they know the whole order of service off by heart. Uh, they don't look up to the screen to uh, sing the songs because they know all of the old hymns. And yet when you chat with them after church, you get that deep sense that they have never had a personal relationship with Jesus, that they don't know him as Lord and Saviour, that for them, church has just been that cultural thing that they do, that thing that they are connected with. And where this becomes most obvious is when you start talking about evangelism in church. And you have those conversations. I've had those conversations where somebody had said to me, I don't know if I want to invite other people to church because it might change. I like catching up over morning tea with my friends. What if I have to talk to somebody new? Ugh, that is going to make me feel uncomfortable. That people would say that they do not want somebody to hear 
the glory of God and how God is calling all people into a new relationship because they're scared that the culture of their church might change. One of the things I've loved about joining OEC as a church is that as a relatively new church, only 27 years old, there aren't that many adults who can say, I'm part of this church because I've been coming since a child and it's just what I do. There is an intentionality to who we are as we come together. But as, a, as we grow as a church, there is a challenge for us as there were for the people, uh, uh, the, the Jewish people, uh, that we can love the things that we are now, that we can love the relationships that we have now, and that we don't want to risk these because it might become uncomfortable if there are new people to meet or there are new things that are happening. Like my friend John, we might want to sit on the couch rather than stepping out uh, because we want to protect what we have. And the challenge for us is that we want to I love God and we want people to know this good news that we know, uh, even if it means it might be uncomfortable for us. Uh, and finally, as we draw to a close, uh, the encouragement for us is that we might be like the Thessalonians. Uh, on one side, that might just mean that it, uh, when we f- uh, face persecution in our, our world, in our society, that we want to keep on going on. We kind of keep on doing what we're doing. But there's another important thing. And that is, as we come to church on a Sunday, uh, is your deep conviction uh, that you are coming here and that the very words of God might be speaking to you today? Uh, That the author of all creation longs to see somebody who arrives here at 10.45 as one person, but actually leaves at midday a different person? Are we open to the idea that God might actually shape and change our hearts, that he might open our eyes, that he might unstop our ears and that we might see him in a new way as we come? Or are we in danger and just coming along because that's what we do? If God is going to speak, it's not because I'm going to be a more persuasive speaker. It's not going to be because Ed is more charismatic but it's going to be because we are prayerful people who long for God to speak to us, that we recognise that it is his word, not Tim or Ed or Greg or Chris or anybody else who comes and speaks here, but that God speaks to us through his word, that he convicts us through his spirit, and through this we become more like Jesus. Let's thank him for that now in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Our Lord, we do thank you that you are the covenant-keeping God that you continue to be faithful to your people uh, even when we are not faithful to you. And so we pray, Lord, that we might have a deep desire like Paul did to see his people come to a saving faith. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would not be the people who close our eyes, who stop our ears and who refuse to respond to the, the message of hope and life and truth. And we pray, Lord, that in our weakness, in our trembling, that you might continue to work in us and through us and for us through your spirit. Make us bold, Lord, not only to live out our lives of faith with enthusiasm, but also to share that even when it becomes uncomfortable. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.